Hello everyone and welcome to the podcast of English composer Andrew Downs. My name is Paula Downs, I'm Andrew's younger daughter and on today's show I'm going to be reading chapter 3 from my granddad Frank Downs' book Around the Horn. The contents of chapter 3 are as follows. Second World War Begins BBC restructures its programmes. Birmingham, Cardiff and Belfast orchestras disbanded. BBC Symphony Orchestra in Bristol. Paul Beard. Blitz, Air Raids, Bolt, Sergeant. Dunkirk, 1940. I shall never forget that morning. The family gathered around the wireless at 11 o'clock to hear Chamberlain, in sombre voice, announce that This country is at war. With Germany. Full of apprehension and like millions of others, fearing instant bombing, attacks, poison gas and all the other horrors of modern warfare, tension remained high for many days and the blackout made travelling around the country rather difficult. But incredibly, in those days, one rarely heard of muggings and molestings in the streets. Theatres, cinemas and concert halls suffered inevitably in the initial period. The BBC completely restructured its programmes, particularly in music. The symphony orchestra was, on the declaration of war, sent to Bristol. Manchester retained its BBC Northern Orchestra and Glasgow its BBC Scottish Orchestra, whilst Birmingham's Midland Orchestra, Cardiff's Welsh Orchestra and Belfast's Northern Ireland Orchestra were disbanded. All musicians under the age of 35, it was agreed, should be released for national service, and those over that age filled, where possible, vacancies in Bristol, Manchester and Glasgow. Three string players of the Midland Orchestra, I recall, filled some of those vacancies. Ernest Element went to Manchester. My brother Herbert and Arthur Cockerell went to Glasgow. Bristol suffered badly during this time and in another raid, Paul Beard had a lucky escape when he was blown off his bicycle. My eldest brother Harry was in Bristol at this time too. He was a professional ballroom dancer and he had a studio there after studying with Victor Sylvester in London in 1933-34. A fellow of the Imperial Society of Dancing, he won the West of England Championship for four years from 1935 onwards. He had a keen sense of humour and I remember him telling a story in 1940. One needed such a sense in the grim times of that year. Apparently he was driving to Cheddar to give a demonstration when, approaching a crossroads a few miles away, he was uncertain of the way. Getting out of his Austin 7 on a rather lonely stretch of road, he saw an old gentleman on the opposite side of the road coming towards him. He crossed the road to ask the way. Excuse me, old chap, can you tell me the way to Cheddar? he asked politely. The old man looked him up and down suspiciously without answering. He was obviously mindful of the government warnings of fifth columnists, espionage, careless talk and the fact that signposts had been removed from roads to hinder and confuse the enemy in the event of invasion. He walked around the car, looked at the number plates, licence, etc., peered into the vehicle, and at length turned to Harry, looking him in the eyes, saying emphatically, I shan't tell in a broad West Country accent. Music in Birmingham was in a precarious state at the outbreak of the war. 
Defence regulations had put the town hall out of use as far as the city orchestra was concerned. Sandbags completely surrounded the building to protect it against the expected air raids. These did not materialise, and in October of 1939, a series of concerts was arranged in the large theatre of the Midland Institute, conducted by Victor Helly Hutchinson, and, mainly because of the blackout, all concerts were arranged to take place in the afternoon. This, then, was my first opportunity of playing horn in the City of Birmingham Orchestra. The concerts proved popular and successful, and they were continued in rather more convivial surroundings at the West End Cinema. Guest conductors included Clarence Raybould, Basil Cameron, Julius Harrison and Warwick Braithwaite, And an outstanding violin soloist in one concert was Thomas Matthews playing the Beethoven Concerto. It was a great disappointment to me, however, that Leslie Howard was unable to conduct at this time, owing to ill health. This disappointment was short-lived. In 1940, when the town hall was once more available as a concert hall, he was able to resume as conductor and I had the privilege of experiencing as a young player the conducting of this wonderful musician. I remember on one occasion, about a couple of days before a concert, the secretary of the orchestra, a remarkable man named Shepherd, who in those austere days seemed to be secretary, librarian, orchestral manager and third trumpet when required, called me into the office and asked if I would go to Mr Howard's house in Harborne Road. I was to take the fourth horn part of a Sibelius symphony as he wanted to cue certain tuba parts into the fourth horn copy which I was to play the following day. Apparently the tuba player had been called to the forces and they had been unsuccessful in getting a replacement. Off I went with part and score on the number three bus, arrived at the house to be greeted by his wife Leonora, who informed me that Mr Howard was not very well, was in bed and would I go up to him. I will never forget how ill he looked that morning, propped up in bed. He took the part, and as I gave him the score, he copied in pencil the relevant tuba part without looking at it. There were two other conductors who came to Birmingham during the following weeks, names which I had only previously read about and heard so often on the wireless, Sir Adrian Bolt and Malcolm Sargent. I remember very little of the latter's visit at that time, but do vividly recall Sir Adrian. There was a dignified modesty about his approach to the players, many of whom he addressed by name. From his days in Birmingham he even recalled the names of the porters. There was a complete lack of unnecessary gestures in his conducting, and another thing which impressed and surprised me was the fact that he read through a movement or piece without stopping before going into detail in further rehearsal. Air raids on the Midlands began in the latter months of 1940. Many nights were spent in shelters and the devastating raid on Coventry in November shocked and stunned everyone. Sirens seemed to be wailing day and night. Periods of silence from them seemed to be few and far between. I remember Constant Lambert coming to the town hall to conduct a recording of the Tchaikovsky Romeo and Juliet overture and halfway through the master recording the siren on the roof of the town hall moaned away. We had thus made the only recording of that overture with air raid warning accompaniment. That record, of course, is now in the archives. 
Heavy falls of snow came to see out the end of a year in which Dunkirk in the summer and now air attacks on our towns and cities brought spirits to a low ebb. The snow in places was several feet deep. Transport came almost to a standstill and I remember walking to Birmingham with my French horn in order to fulfil a Sunday afternoon concert at the old repertory theatre. When I set out early on that bitterly cold morning, I had serious doubts as to whether I should reach the city, but my hopes rose when I saw a single-deck Midland Red bus approach the bus station. After much consultation with his conductor, the brave driver decided to take the hazardous journey back to Birmingham. I was the only passenger. We skidded and slithered our way to the Scott Arms pub at Great Bar before the driver gave up and decided he could go no further. I had no alternative now and began to walk the next six miles to the city. At Perry Bar, at the junction of Aldridge Road, nearly four miles from Birmingham, I saw two lonely figures ahead, one carrying a violin case. Incredibly, it was the conductor of the orchestra, Harold Gray, and Norris Stanley, the leader, who was due to play the Max Brook G minor concerto. They had walked from Sutton Coldfield. We had very little time for rehearsal of the programme, which also included Haydn's Symphony 102. Eric Blom, the critic of the Birmingham Post, was extremely diplomatic and wrote mainly about the orchestra's valiant efforts in overcoming the elements. Shortly afterwards, as I was returning from a concert in Nottingham's Albert Hall, where Pushnoff had been the soloist, an air raid was in progress over Birmingham. A red sky and darting searchlights were visible over the city as our coach approached Tamworth from the north and it ended in a tragedy for us. As we arrived at the Musicians' Union Club in the city centre, an elderly colleague in the horn section collapsed and died before we could get help. It was a nightmare amidst mounting chaos in the adjoining streets as Harold Gray and I made our way to New Street Station. It was a night I shall never forget. Appointed associate conductor to Leslie Howard in 1932, one only has to read the excellent book written by Beresford King Smith, The First Fifty Years, to see the enormous contribution Harold Gray made to the progress of the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra. His vast repertoire of orchestral music and opera surely made him one of his generation's most experienced conductors. The sincerity and integrity of his personality shone through his performances, and I recall in the late 1960s his cycle of the Six Symphonies of Nielsen, a composer with whom he seemed to have a special affinity. The CBSO has cause to be grateful in so many ways, not least for his absolute reliability in difficult situations. In the 1956-57 season, for instance, when Beecham was taken ill, Harold took over at very short notice a performance of the Liszt Faust Symphony, studied the score from 4pm to 4am and produced a stunning performance of the work.
To end this podcast, I am going to play Andrew Down's Symphony No. 2, First Movement, performed by the Czech Philharmonic Orchestra under André Vrabets for the Artismon label. I believe this movement depicts the fear and melancholy experienced by my grandad during this terrifying period. There are also sections that sound like air raids and bombs with angular strings, wailing ostinatos and loud percussion. There is also a sense of hope in parts, which to me is the depiction of the excitement of my grandad of performing such great music alongside such great musicians. <laughs>